This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. First of all, thank you everyone for coming tonight. We've got a pat uh, I was going to leave that to the end. Um, <laughs> uh, well, welcome uh, everyone tonight and uh, welcome to the festival. Um, uh, because it's a book festival, I should say, first of all, I'm Pat Nevin uh, and I used to play a wee bit of football, so that's why I'm here to talk to John. Um, I've got one friend here anyway. Um, Tonight we're here to actually listen and chat to John about his new book, which is called Please Don't Go. Uh, John and I will have a quick chat for about 35 minutes about the book, uh, and then we'll take some questions from the floor uh, through me, myself to, the, to John. Uh, when we take the questions, uh, the microphone will come to you, so wait till the microphone comes to you uh, to ask the question. Uh, could I possibly ask you if, it's, if you could turn off your mobile phones, and certainly at least take them onto silent just now, and if you're sending any tweets, try to do it afterwards, if you don't mind. Um, and if it's possible, if you could stay during the event as well, it's kind of off-putting to the author if you have to move. Uh, uh, afterwards, I'll tell you afterwards, there's, uh, there's another tent you can go to and there will be a signing afterwards. So if you could let John, particularly myself, go out afterwards and then it's just round to the side here, you'll see afterwards, but I'll remind you that uh, near the end. Uh, and apparently the books are £7.99 and they'll Cheap. be there to sign them as well. Uh, okay. Um, just a little personal note, um, I played against John a few times, not directly, I was usually up the other end of the pitch, and playing against John was like playing against a wall, it was, it was so big and also it was so powerful, you could hit him as hard as you like and he never seemed to budge, it was also quite hard to get round like a wall as well, uh, he's actually slimmed down a wee bit I noticed as well, uh, he played for many great teams and we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, and one of them was Glasgow Celtic. And there are one or two Celtic fans here, I would imagine. I can remember playing against that team, and it was Big John and Sutton and uh, Valharan, Varga, um, ooh, where else? Baldy. <laughs> there was a guy called Larson playing as well. <laughs> I worked that out, and the average height of those guys was six foot two. It was tough to play against those guys. The annoying thing is, Larson, Sutty, and Big Bad John here. They actually weren't just big, they were technically very good as well. So they were a hell of a com combination of a team to play against, very hard, and they should have gone on to one, win what should have been Celtic's second ever European trophy, but I'm sure you know that anyway. Uh, there's another combination I'd like to talk about, and it came together in the book, Please Don't Go, uh, written by John. Uh, it's a, I hate, I'm gonna have to say this, chaps. It's a book of two halves. <laughs> <laughs> The first half is fantastic. You whiz through the start of John's career, or a long, long part of his career, and then comes the second part, which happens after he gets a devastating piece of news, which many of you know about, and that takes up most of the second part of the book. It's a very interesting way that it is done, and John and I again will talk about that as we go on. So thanks for coming tonight, and uh, I'll start asking John some questions. Can I just say, first of all, thank you very much for coming. It's a privilege to be here. This is my first time at the event. And I uh, <coughs> flew in this morning at 11 o'clock and I've spent the afternoon looking around and um, I'm meeting everybody. And I just wanted to take the whole thing in. My wife was meant to come with me, Sarah, who features very prominently in the book. But uh, we've got two little babies at home and it's difficult leaving them sometimes. 
Um, this is going to be hard for me tonight. It's, um, I think, one-on-ones like this in front of quite a close um, audience. Is uh, I'm quite an emotional person anyway, so uh, I'm anticipating sort of uh, go in once or twice. I'll, I'll, I'll try and um, go easy on you, Joy. <laughs> which is gold for you, lot, obviously. <laughs> but for me, you know, Big Bad John, it's a bit embarrassing, you know. But, uh, right, we'll start off I'll with... I'll do my best. We'll start off with an easy one. It is a literary festival, so I'll, I'll ask you a couple of questions about how the book came to be. Um, how much time and effort did you put into it? And uh, you worked with uh, Rachel, yeah. Rachel Murphy on this. Rachel Murphy was the writer. I, I specifically wanted a woman writer for this book. Um, I brought the book out about my career, football stories, managers I played with, best players, worst players, best grounds, general football stories in 2006, what you would call an autobiography. <coughs> um, but this particular book, because of its story and the fact it was cancer, um, I felt would appeal to a lot of women out there. Whereas the first book, the biography, John Artson, football fans in general would buy it. Um, but whereas with this one, because it's the women's dads, brothers, sons, it would appeal to the woman element out there as well as the John Artson fans, you know? So I requested, I, I, I wanted a woman writer. I'd, I'd spoken with, with Bill Campbell from Mainstream Publishing who, who, who did a fantastic job in, uh, in finding Rachel. And um, I put a lot of work into the book. I wanted to do the book because I wanted to raise the awareness side of this. And I just felt that uh, it's a horrible, horrible disease which takes a lot of good people away from us, cancer. And the, the awareness side of it, and the guys will tell you, Fiona, Bethia, Bill, Peter, they're all here tonight. I've worked extremely hard in promoting it. I've been over to Belfast, I've been over to Dublin, I've, I've been down in Swansea, Cardiff, uh, Edinburgh, Glasgow. I've been everywhere doing sign-ins. And I think that's important, because if you want to get the book out there, you've got to, you've got to go out and sell it. Um, Rachel literally moved in with me for about two to three months. Um, she'd come down and we got to know her, her husband, the kids, everything else. They stayed with us. We lunched, we went out for a drink and she felt it was important that she got to know my wife, Sarah, got to know me more of as an, more of us as an individual person. And she felt she'd have more of an idea and she'd be able to write the book better if she got to know the person. Um, so the answer is yes, I did put a lot of work into the book. Yeah, it's, it becomes very clear. I, we'll talk, chat a bit later how many of it have you actually have read the book already, but uh, having read it in a day over the weekend, mm. um, it is a very personal book. It's an extraordinarily emotional book, which is an important thing as well. Um, and you've explained to us how that actually worked with the lady you work with. It's not like a normal football <laughs> autobiography. Uh, very, very different from that. Um, I was recalling one bit right at the start of the book. As I say, it's a book of two halves. The first book is a recollection in many ways of the way your career went before then, but done in a very different way. It's mm. just like, um, the way I think of it, it's like a stream of consciousness, just John's ideas springing out, springing out, springing out. And it's brilliant to read, and it's fast to read, and it's quick to read, but you had, it had to be written in that way because you'd already done the normal autobiography. Mm. Um, so what I was going to ask you to do was, I, had, I was going to ask you to read a little bit just a little bit of this, and if you could stay with John, just to get an idea of the style um, of this. Here we go. 
I'm going easy on him in the first one. <coughs> Just a little passage. Um, and this is uh, what he said about the time when he arrived at Arsenal, or when he were at Arsenal. <sighs> big breath, big breath, John. I'm a giant when I leave the ground. I'm stopping at the late night garage to, f to buy the first editions of the Sunday papers. I'm there on the back page, celebrating my arms in the air after scoring for Arsenal. I look at myself in disbelief. I am 19 years old. I'm living my dream. That memory ends and the euphoria slips down my throat. I gulp. My stomach is tense and knotted. I see Bruce Rioch's face. He has replaced Stuart Houston as manager at the end of my first season. I am gutted. I am nervous. I don't know this man and he doesn't know me. He leaves me out of the team. I feel bullied. I sit on the bench and I watch the other players run onto the pitch. Week in, week out, I see a pale ghost of myself running back down the tunnel. Is this the end of the dream? It can't be over so soon. So it gives you an idea of what the first half of the book is like. I mean, it's, it's lightning, you go through your career, but it's also almost done as a memory, which is, becomes a very interesting, quick read, but it's zipped through. And the reason for doing it, as I said before, is probably because you had to get through because you wanted to get to the, the real meat of the story. Mm. And that was your battle with cancers. Now, there will be some people here tonight who don't have a full knowledge of what actually happened. Can you talk us through, briefly, mm. when you first get the news and what happened in that period after that? <coughs> well, um, I'd had lumps. I'd had small lumps on my testicles um, for about seven or eight years. And yes, you can say, well, it's ignorant of my health. I should have gone and certainly had them looked at. But what people have to realise is I was, I was living a perfectly normal life. I was training every day. I was fathering kids. I was scoring goals. I was, I was doing everything normal. But I had these lumps. Um, and I wasn't aware that lumps on your testicles is a big, big telltale sign of testicular cancer. I was not aware of that. Um, if I had been aware, I would have gone, obviously, straight away. So, um, basically, <clears throat> when I retired at West Brom, I started to have these really, really mind-blowing headaches. Um, hence, the cancer was on top of me. It had got on top of me. When and you were still unaware of the cancer, what it was. You were just unaware, getting blinding I was unaware. I had lumps. And they'd now gone from like little nut-sized lumps to like pea, baked bean-sized lumps. Mm. Um, and I went to get, I went to the doctors and the, doc the doctor said to me, I'm going to get you a proper diagnosis at the hospital. She then ch booked me into the hospital for an appointment with a specialist. And within five, two minutes, he diagnosed me with testicular cancer. And straight away, when you're told you got cancer, you think, that's it, I'm going to die. You know, I'm, I'm going to die. You, you really think it's over. Um, and I never told my wife for about a day and a half because I just had to take it in myself um, first and come to terms with what I'd been told. Um, and at the same time, I was getting these mind-blowing headaches. Um, you couldn't get out of bed couldn't get out of bed um, and I genuinely believe if I hadn't have checked myself into hospital on that particular Friday I would have died I would have died in bed with the with the sore heads I was getting
because they were mind-blowing. I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't get out of bed. I could not do anything. And the cause of the headaches was? I believe it was the cancer. It was, it was on me. It was ready to explode. Um, and I went into hospital, and I don't know whether anybody's aware, but if you check into hospital on a Friday, it's a nightmare because the doctors are all off on the weekends, and nurses is not, not particularly specialists in certain fields at the hospital. They didn't know what was wrong with me initially. Um, and then uh, I had some radiotherapy straight away. Um, uh, on the Monday then, uh, I actually went and had some, uh, some treatment and I was getting different opinions from different doctors and nurses and specialists. And it took them three or four days to actually get to grips with what my problem was. And, and I was riddled from head to toe, obviously, with, with cancer. It was a big number. Uh, we usually have a cancer count most of us, I think, in the single figures. Can you remember what your count was? Yeah, I had over 200,000 cancer markers on my body. You know, I, had, uh, I, was, I was riddled from head to toe. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said to my dad, Mr. Hartson, we're not concerned about John's cancer. You know, we are just trying to keep him alive. You know, I, was, um, I shouldn't be here, really. I should have died. I should have gone. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe I did die. I believe I went to a very, very dark place. Um, uh, I slipped into a coma for two days, and I think I went, I genuinely think I went to the other side. I thought they were going to take my limbs, cut my limbs off. Mm -hmm. I was on very uh, strong tablets um, to help me sleep, to help me with the pain. Um, and there were certain times where I, I really thought that I wasn't on, on this planet, really. I thought my wife was having an affair with a Filipino doctor. <laughs> um, I thought my mum and dad were on the beer in the hospital and in the casino and all this. And uh, There was a reason for you thinking that, though. Yeah, well, I was on very highly strung drugs at the time. And, um, but obviously there wasn't a bar at the hospital. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm sure my dad might have visited a few times. But um, no, obviously, I was, I was in a really, really bad way. And um, uh, I, I spent, obviously, seven weeks in the HDU with a one-on-one -on -one doctor and 24-hour care, high-dependency unit. And, um, you know, it was horrendous, really. And um, obviously, further on, you're going to speak about my wife, Sarah. And my wife was, was, was pregnant at the time with, uh, with Stephanie, who's now one and a half. And we had a one-year-old that was Lena. She's now three. Our two little beautiful girls. And um, it was difficult for her because she had to rest and she had to eat and she had to stay strong and never quite knew whether I was going to live or die. It was very much looking like I was going to go. You know? But this was the interesting thing about the way the book panned out. I mean, as I say, by this point in the book, I have to say John finds it difficult to talk about it or even... You haven't fully read the book. Parts no, of it that no. you know you've, you've worked so hard on it, you put time in it, you find it too difficult and too emotional. To I read. haven't read the book now, start to finish. I've read Martin O'Neill's foreword, I've read Sarah's preface, I've read bits and bobs, but I haven't actually read the book. I find it too, you know, too upsetting. It, it, I mean, that would sound like there are many footballers who release books and don't read them, but for a different reason completely. <laughs> <laughs> but having read the book, I know that that's not the case with John. It is incredibly emotional. Now, do you want to have a go? I'll have a go. Well, go this is a, a, a small passage um, that uh, was written. Just before you start, I'll explain the background to it. Um, the second half of the book, uh, when John gets very, very ill, and for those seven weeks or so, he doesn't know what's going on. He's close to death. 
feels he had died as well. Certainly, this is what his wife felt at the time. But you didn't know this was going on and you had to read this. I, I can't do that. <laughs> Would you like me to read a little bit of it myself? Okay. Um, this is John's wife, Sarah, speaking. I could hear John's breathing getting heavier and heavier. Suddenly he was gasping for air inside the oxygen mask, making a desperate, yeah, yeah, noise. My eyes darted to the oxygen machine, plugged up beside his bed. I saw the number start to plummet. 60, 52, 40. I didn't understand what it meant. I just knew that they shouldn't be dropping so quickly. Panic rising in my voice. I shouted out, what's happening? Paul was shouting too. All I could see his lips was moving. I couldn't hear a thing. In the blink of an eye, the room was spilling over with stony-faced doctors, nurses all fastening up the white aprons as they dashed beside John's bedside. Tubes and drips everywhere. Fear flooded my body. Nobody spoke a word. I felt like I was in the middle of pandemonium. It reminded me of the eerie chaos in the long minutes after Lena's traumatic birth. I could see white coats dashing everywhere, trolleys being wheeled in, machines flashing, tubes and wires being plugged frantically into John. It was like watching a silent movie, and the silence scared me. Suddenly, an awful realisation hit me. I realised the sound of John's desperate breathing had gone too. That's why my whole world had gone quiet. Oh no, my God. John, he stopped breathing. I stopped one of the male nurses. He tells me, I tell him, is he okay? Tell me he's going to be okay. He looked at the floor, unable to make eye contact, and scuttled into the cupboard. The digital numbers in John's oxygen machine had disappeared completely now. And it was making that flat, lifeless beeping, beeping sound I'd only ever heard when someone died in casualty. I ran outside, shouting for Cyril and Diana. He stopped breathing. Their faces were ashen. Dr. Bertelli was with John now, and all he could do was wait anxiously for the news. None of us spoke. What could we say? Dr. Bertelli finally called in. He looked very serious. I was holding my breath from fear as he spoke. We're going to have to perform an emergency brain operation. My heart thumped. That is so hard to actually read. Now it's... I can tell you now, when I was reading it, after having read the story, and the wonderful thing about the book is you get to know John's wife very well, and your sister Victoria incredibly well as well. Mm -hmm. And it, it is a, an unnerving thing that you suddenly feel, and I, I can tell you this wonderful moment. I'm reading this. Now, not long ago, a couple of months ago, I did the cup final with John, the Scottish Cup final, and uh, we did the, the punditry together. It was a nice, quiet day. Not. And uh, I was reading this book thinking, I wonder if he's going to make it. I've actually worked with them <laughs> since this. <laughs> and it tells you an extraordinary story and, and how powerful it was. Um, I know we're running on for time, so, and I know some of you have come to hear some football stuff from John as well, so we'll move along uh, a little bit from that as well. Um, you play for a number of clubs. Do you want to run through them quickly? Yeah, I enjoyed a very good career, actually. Um, better than most. Uh, a lot of people would swap their careers for mine. <coughs> um, I still believe if I'd looked after myself, I probably could have gone on and done bigger and better things. My fitness was always a bit of an issue. Um, I was always a little bit arsey, they call it, in my shorts. <laughs> but that was my strength, you know. <laughs> Kenny Dalglish was good with his backside yeah. as well, and uh, so he wasn't a bad player. But uh, no, I started at Luton, obviously, as a young boy, and, um, and then I went on to break a record. I was Britain's most expensive teenager when I signed for Arsenal, the most money anybody ever paid for a teenager in British history. 
I went there for three million pounds. I then went on to West Ham for five million pounds. Again, a record for West Ham. Working with Harry Redknapp was a joy. Um, I then did something extraordinary. I went to Wimbledon for seven and a half million pounds. When you can imagine, I probably skinted them because they were out of business about two years <laughs> after that. So I've skinted a few clubs in my time, but. Um, I went from Wimbledon, I failed four medicals. The most famous one is the one at Rangers, obviously with my so-called dodgy knee. But I uh, went on to play 230 games for Celtic. I never once put a packet of ice on my knee. Um, never mind any operations or anything like that. Scoring over 100 goals, obviously, for, for the great club it is. Um, and then I retired at West Bromwich Albion. I had a short spell at Norwich. Um, won over 50 caps for my country, and obviously a very, very proud Welshman. And, you know, to take the number nine jersey off Ian Rushall was my hero. Um, and uh, so I enjoyed a really, really good, successful career. And obviously now I'm, I'm very busy with the media stuff. And I'm currently contracted with three major television companies. And I've got a column and a foundation and four kids. So don't ask me why I'm not managing. There's my answer. <laughs> um, but no, life is good now. And um, I Does see... I mean, I can actually call you a media tart. <laughs> Probably, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd be able to see that about uh, anyone. But I see life a little bit differently now. You know, I appreciate the um, the simple things in life. Mm -hmm. um, I think it nearly got taken away from me. And um, my dad always tells me that the the best things in life are for free. You don't have to pay for them. You know, the air that we breathe, and um, the use of your arms and your legs, and you know the fact you can get up. And I was strolling along Princess Street today on my own, and it was just sucking in the fresh air and. The world is a, is a lovely place to be now, you know, and uh, my, my children are healthy and um, your health is everything, you know. Um, you can have five million pounds in the bank, but if you can't get out of bed and spend it, then what good is it to anybody, you know, and your health is imperative. And um, I've learned that. Um, I've learned that now. And as I said, I, I really, really appreciate simple things. The fact you can get out of bed in the morning and put the kettle on and get down the stairs unaided and you know, I left hospital on a Zimmer frame. You know, I was in a, and I didn't know which way I was going to go really, or whether I was going to be end up back in hospital after a week or whether I was going to recover. So, um, I feel I've been very, very lucky. Um, I don't know what got me there in terms of why I didn't die, and it takes so many people away from us. Cancer. Could, could I ask you, and this maybe a slightly le leading question? You didn't know why it, it didn't take you away. Mm. Is there any possibility of being an ex-footballer and the fact that you trained so hard, that you'd worked so hard, that you were so determined to mm. reach the top of your career made you that type of person? Or is that an over-simplistic analogy? You know, cancer is much bigger than that. Well, I don't know, Pat, because cancer has taken bigger men than me in its time. You know, I had a good, strong heart. I had a good, working heart because I'd always been a non-smoker. So I had a strong core, if you like. I had good lungs. Um, and when they was asking me to blow into these bags every three or four days to give you tests, mm -hmm. lung tests, heart tests, and I was bursting the bag. <laughs> like, I literally was, because I trained every day in my life for 18 years. So that helps, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't get you there. Mm -hmm. um, I believe, personally, I think the power of prayer, I think, is very, very strong. Um, there was a lot of people praying for me around the world, not just the Celtic family, if you like. They were unbelievable. But I think, I think God decides everything. And I'm not a massive religious person. I don't particularly, I'm not a massive church goer. 
but I believe there's a God and I think he decides, uh, you know, uh, he decides who gets cancer, who he takes and who gets through because there's no parity to who gets cancer. You know, the man off the street can get it tomorrow. My cancer can come back tomorrow. It can come back in 20 years. You know, there is no, you know, no one's got a divine right to avoid this horrible disease. You know, it can, it can, it can hit anybody at any time. Hit me at 34, having been a professional, successful football player. Um, so I believe it, it wasn't my time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I'm still here, because uh, he decided um, not to take me away. Sarah thinks you're just lucky, though. Probably. <laughs> she keeps on saying it in the book all the time. I wish I was as lucky on the horses, but there you go. <laughs> Which is another question I wanted to ask you about. You're very open. You're talking about that problem with the cancer and you felt that. But you're very, very brutally honest about your gambling habit yeah. as well and how that affected you. What was the reason for putting that in the book? Well, it's out there, isn't it? Um, I got nothing to hide, you know. Do you want uh, that to help other people as well? The fact that the madness my story of it? can help another one person. You know, it started with the fruit machines, um, and um, you know, I never took drugs. I wasn't a massive drinker. Um, I liked the bet and I liked the bird, you know. Um, but it's under control now. Sarah gets all the money. Everything goes into her account. She gives me an allocation, enough for a bag of chips and a can of Coke, and I fill my car up with petrol, and once it's gone, it's gone. Um, Is the temptation still there? Yeah, I still I told you God decides everything. <laughs> I was really worried for a second there. But no, um, I still go to the races and I'll take a couple of hundred quid and I, I won't take 10 grand this time, I'll take 300 quid, you know. Um, but no, the gambling is a big, big problem in football. It's a big problem in life. You know, a lot of families suffer with, with gambling and the man, he's a grafter, he works hard and on a Friday he'll go to the bookies and it was an issue I had to deal with and I'm on top of it now. Um, it took me a long time and a, a certain way of, of dealing with things but um, I'm not afraid to say that um, I had a gambling addiction, and it is an addiction. Mm. You know, it's like it's like being an alcoholic. You know, it's like being a, a sex addict. It's like being um, anything really. Mm -hmm. It's like smoking. It's an addiction I had, and I, I it's it's a constant battle I have to deal with it. Um, but no, it's it's not a problem for me telling people. Mm. I don't want this to sound as if it's an entirely depressing book in any way. It's extraordinarily uplifting in huge areas. Um, and I've, I've read many footballing autobiographies, usually because I have to, and I'm told to read them, and I've, many of them are quite dull. And one of the worst things I ever read in an autobiography is usually the description of goals. You, you, uh, yawn, you know, I'd rather see them on the telly. However, there was a description of a goal in this game, in this book, which was fabulous. Um, could you tell me what it felt like and how important it was that night to score against Liverpool for Celtic? Yeah, well, that was, um, like I say, I shouldn't have lived. I shouldn't have scored the goals I scored. Mm -hmm. um, I defied logic in a way, and I was born with a gift. That gift was a, I could score. Um, I'm a big believer in that. And um, Jim, the fitness coach at Celtic, used to tell me that 
it's like when you watch you play, John, it's like you've got all these little sort of soldiers there and then bring on the heavy artillery. <laughs> he says, and you come on and you just go <laughs> He says, and you just blow everybody away, you know? And like, like I say about my illness and things like that, it's like the way I was and my shape and my fitness, this and the other, I, got, I should never have got 110 goals for Celtic. So that tells me that something was right. I could put myself in certain positions. But, but was that the best one? Was that the most Probably, enjoyable one? because I was a Liverpool supporter and my dad says to me to this day, he says, if the net wasn't there, I'd have actually caught the ball. Ah, fantastic. Because he was behind the goal with the Celtic fans and uh, nobody goes to Liverpool on a Thursday night and beats Liverpool mm -hmm. at Anfield under the lights in Europe. Mm -hmm. But we did, you know, and we did it in a certain way. We won 2-0, mm -hmm. played them off the park. And that year, obviously, we got to the final and uh, we proved we were a great side, you know. Arguably as good a side as, as the great days, you know, the, the guys that put Celtic on the map, the Lisbon Lions. So. Uh, that was a great, great strike. As you know, I didn't get many goals outside the box, yeah. uh, mainly headers and tap-ins and whatever. But that was from about 30 yards and, um, you know, you get one of them in a career. But it helps you later as well, because that was one of the ones that you kept remembering when you were coming out. And mm -hmm. that was a quite moving part in the book, that the elation that you felt at that time yeah. was something that kind of... Well, I'd missed a penalty against Rangers four days prior to that. You didn't uh, say that in the book. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> and obviously that, that upset me quite a bit. Um, it was at Hamden in a cup final. I put it by the side of the post. Worst thing was Kloss went the other way as well. So. Um, but to come back and I went out for the warm-up and the Celtic fans were singing my name and to do it at Anfield in such a big, big game, you know, it's, it's sort of um, people tended to forget the Rangers penalty then. Uh, pretty quickly after that, so that was important to me. You talk with such warmth, I mean, uh, all of us have had a football career and we've moved around a lot, and you're always asked who was your favourite team you played for, and it's a very difficult one, because you don't want to offend anyone, no. you know, cause you, and I had very happy times at every club that I've, I've yes, been to. I'm the same, yeah. But I, I'm reading this book, and it's not because we're in Scotland, but Celtic seems to me, I think you felt that was the high watermark of your career. Well, Why was that? Well, I'd only been to Glasgow uh, once in my life, mm -hmm. up until I was 26, and that was on a pre-season tour with West Ham. And then I signed for Celtic at 26. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as I got in the team, I scored and 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 I scored. Mm -hmm. I just went on an incredible run of five years, and I had two back operations in that time. Mm -hmm. You know, you hear about strikers now go seven, eight goals without a game. That never happened. That never happened to me in five years. I never went three games without a goal. I continuously scored all the time. And I think sometimes you have, you have um, a lucky time at a club and you find a club that suits you. And I met my wife, Sarah, who's Scottish and she's from the Highlands. And um, I'd always had my links with Glasgow because of the football, but I've got extra links now having in-laws that are also Scottish and from a, from a the Highlands Way and Fort William and my children come and visit and we have an apartment in Glasgow and Scotland is pretty much my second home now you know I love where I come from I love where I live in Wales I live in a rural part of Swansea with loads of green and um, I, I love where I'm living now. Um, Would you have had a happy ending? Yeah I probably <laughs> will live in Scotland again my wife gets a little bit unsettled down there she misses her family friends she went to Glasgow University so she misses people up here. She certainly misses her family. Her sister's got four kids. She lives in Glasgow. 
so they'd like to see each other a lot more. Is, is another part of it the reaction that the fans had to you? Mm. There, there's something about that wall of sound at a big club. It's that sort of size, and that, that, the supporters are that incredible mm. with the support. They're that noisy. They're, they're so passionate about it. Is that different than any other club you've been to as well? Well, I'd always shared a good rapport with the crowd. Uh, West Ham crowd, the Arsenal crowd, the Luton crowd, where it all started for me. Even the 20 people that used to watch us play for Wimbledon. You know, <laughs> I got on well with them as well. Um, but with the, with the Celtic crowd, for, for whatever reason, I really don't know. I've got an unbelievable rapport with the crowd. I get the loudest cheer. There's probably only Henrik and Lenny, I would say, that are probably more well-perceived than mm -hmm. myself. Whenever I go to Guest of Honor things in Ireland, I, I, it just brings the house down. And I, I'm so eternally grateful for that and what I've done to deserve that. I, I just think I'm, I'm honest with them. Uh, I played that way. If I wasn't very fit, it showed. If I was fit, it showed. If I scored, I got on well with managers. And um, but I don't know. I, th I think people love a bit of honesty. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever I'm listening to managers talk, I like listening to the Red Naps. And you might not like this, but I do like listening to Strachan. Because <laughs> um, I think sometimes when when you know when when after interviews, you want to you want to know. I know Gordon avoided one or two issues and contradicted himself there a little bit, but. Um, I do like honest people, and um, I like to go home after I've done a show with you mm -hmm. and analyse what I said, and there is never a time where I can't look myself in the mirror before I go to bed and say I try to say it as I saw it. And I think, you know, I've dug a career out for myself in the media, and I think people like that bit of honesty. I think people can spot honesty and absolute male. I think you can be honest, Pat, without being controversial. That's the difference. Or hurtful, maybe. Or hurtful. I think there's a way certain things as you know you can avoid when you're in the studio and there's other things where you can really hit it hard mm -hmm. you know if a striker misses a chance i'll say well he'll be disappointed with that himself you know that mm -hmm. sort of thing you can go around it rather than saying that was because we've all missed chances mm -hmm. so there's a way of putting it as well which comes with experience honestly now we have i, I could actually chat to, chat to john forever here but uh, what i'd like to do is open it up uh, to the floor. Uh, so if you can put your hands up, uh, if anyone has got any questions, just as you're thinking about questions, if you've got any ideas, just before we get to you there, one of the great things about it, and we'll maybe ask John about it later, was the outpouring of affection when you were ill. And yeah. if we thought about that, and we'll maybe have a chat about that afterwards. But Please don't ask me the winner of the 220 at Dundalk tomorrow. <laughs> first question's over there, the gentleman in the white shirt. Hi there, hi. All right. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in Seville and I had a ticket for the game and it took me about a year to watch the game back on DVD. I know you missed it with your back, but um, when I watched it back again, someone kicked off in the tunnel and the cameras never caught the whole thing. And uh, you didn't look too pleased, any chance of spilling the beans for us? <laughs> <laughs> of the sun, you know? <laughs> I really don't know. I can't remember that incident. Gospel truth on my kid's life. I'm honest and... Um, I know something happened against Barcelona in, in, in a game at Celtic Park. I really don't know. I know that the players weren't particularly happy with Jose Mourinho's side because they were diving all over the place that night when they were a, they were a disgrace, actually. Um, they were. They were a disgrace. And Jose Mourinho, for all the wonderful talent he's got, he has been a disgrace at times. The way he acted last year in the Barcelona game as a Madrid coach and all the cheating and everything else. So... I think he can behave better at times as a man. Um, 
although he's gone on and won Champions League, and who am I to, to judge Jose Mourinho? Um, nobody really, but um, I can't recall it. All I know is that the boys weren't very happy with, with some of the play acting. Was that the biggest disappointment of your career that night, that you well, I, weren't playing? I played in every game. Uh, I played in 12 out of 14 games of that cup run. I played Liverpool home and away, Blackburn home and away, Celta Vigo home and away. Stutt I missed Stuttgart home and I missed the final. So obviously I scored an important goal in Vigo and I scored an important goal against Liverpool. So I played my part and I think I probably would have struggled anyway on the night because I was a nightmare playing in the heat. My face used to go all red and blotchy. And, we spotted you know, that, John. Yeah. <laughs> I never run around a lot anyway, but I run less in the heat, you know. And it was such a warm night, wasn't it? It was ridiculously warm. Um, so people said I might have made a difference because I'd played such a big role. Paul Lambert wouldn't have played in that final. The, the system was me and Henrik up top and Sutton and Petrov and Lennon sitting. That was the team. That was a European team. So Lambo came in for myself and he captained the side. Um, but again, that was a big, big disappointment. Another, another bit of adversity I had to get over and uh, to miss such a, such a big game like that, a European final. But I was lucky I did play and score in another European final for Arsenal, uh, the Cup Winners' Cup final in Paris. So uh, I've tasted it before, um, but there you go. Again, God decides everything and I wasn't meant to play, so there you go. Excellent stuff. Apparently there's a chap called Larson who can't even speak about that game yet. Well, there you He's go. so upset. Um, gentlemen, there over there. Black shirt. Hi. <coughs> John. Hi there. Uh, John, as a Celtic fan, first of all, let's say thank you for everything you've done for us. Ah, Absolutely. My job, thank you. And I wish you the best of health. Thank you very much. Prior to coming last night, I did go for a pint yesterday, so I sat and watched the Celtic Dragon video, the first one, yeah. DVD. Yes. To bring it up to date. Uh, some of the goals you scored, didn't you stop to touch the ball, you just levered it. The number of ones you scored with the head. Just one question any chance you could teach Big Sammy how to hit it? <laughs> Just, just for anyone who's not here, that's Giorgio Samaras. <laughs> I have to say, um, I do a column which divides opinion, obviously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got more hair as well. I don't know. Can just we change the subject, please, from here? I just noticed that, did you? But, um, no, I do a column, and I divide a lot of opinion in my column, which isn't that what columnists are meant to do? You know, get people talking in the pubs, the bookies, the bars, the radio stations, and I do that. That's why I've got in my fourth year at the minute with the column. Um, Giorgio Samaras, again, he's a player that divides <laughs> opinion. <laughs> I think I think we've all seen him. He's frustrating more than anything else because we've all seen him destroy Rangers at Ibrox on his own when he scored two goals. His running power, his athleticism, his height the way he can jump and head the ball. The man has got everything, and on his day, he can be unplayable. He's like a poor man's Duncan Ferguson when he's, when he's at it. But the problem with Samaras, he doesn't do it enough. What I mentioned earlier about myself, when I scored and I scored and I scored and I scored, Henrik performed and scored and scored every week. 242 goals in seven years. That's averaging 45 goals a season. That's consistently good front play. 
You know, Georgia Samras last season, six goals. It's not enough, unfortunately. As an old firm striker, you should be scoring 20 goals. You get all the play, you play with the best teams, you get all the possession, especially at home, you get three or four chances a game, you should be hitting 20 goals a season like Hooper did last year and like Stokes did, like I did in four out of the five seasons I was there and I hit 12 when I had two back operations. So as a front man, I'm a believer in strikers for the old firm, whether you're playing for Rangers or Celtic, should be getting 20 goals. If you don't, in my opinion, I don't think you're doing your job right as a striker. John doesn't. <laughs> John doesn't struggle to have opinions for the... No. He lets me get a word in when I'm working with him as well. Um, just first of all, to wish you the best of luck in Thank the future. Thank you. And um, who's the best player you've ever played with um, um, and against outside of Parkhead? Well, you want me to say Larson, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Again, when I went through my career earlier, I, I've played with some of the world's best players. You know, I, I could say Ryan Giggs. For 10 years, I played with Giggsy with the Welsh national team. And he's a wonderful, wonderful player. Um, I was going to say something else then, but I won't. There's too many women. See, I've got respect for women as well, guys. Um, I could say Giggs. I could say Rush. Hughes. Mark Hughes is the greatest player ever with his back to goal. Phenomenal player. Never, ever scored a simple goal. Scored great goals. I could say Dennis Bergkamp, who was a phenomenal talent. I could say Ian Wright, Paul Merson, Sutton, Larson. Um, I could say them all because I've been very, very lucky with the, the players I've played with. Henrik is right up there. He's special. He is he's a freak, really, because <laughs> he's, he's that good. And the amount of times he'd pull us out of a hole. He did it the other night in a proxy friendly <laughs> game. <laughs> Didn't he? Unbelievable. The man is just a freak of nature. He is that good. And um, again, Ian Wright was special. George Graham said to me when I was 19, he said to me, John, if you sign for me today, son, he says, you will play with the England centre forward on Saturday out there on that pitch. Who, of course, was Ian Wright. Um, so I signed. But uh, again, you know, uh, like Pat, Pat would have played with many great players. Um, you're looking for the one and you are in a way, but obviously uh, it's very difficult. You know, there's gigs, there's, there's them all. But Henrik, you know, was, was absolutely special. Is there another gent? Hey, nice all right, thank you. Uh, just one thing I've always wondered was when you signed for Celtic, how did I over take the news? <laughs> 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 well, what happens is when I when I go and do talks now, I do a little bit of after dinner. Can, um, can, I, can I quickly say John doesn't duck that in the book? It's covered in the books, okay? I go and do after dinner speeches sometimes, right? Because I can be quite witty at times. Um, so I start off and I say there might be two hundred there, there might be a hundred, there might be twenty or whatever. And I start off, I get on the stage, and my first line is, I know what everybody's thinking. You're all thinking Al Berkovich, aren't you? Straight away. You're thinking Al Berkovich. So are you. And I did regret it for about 10 minutes, and I wish I'd kicked him <laughs> out. 
that's what I start off by saying, and it gets a laugh, and straight away then you're on your way. But that was an incident where um, I did regret it. I shouldn't have done it. Um, it was a one-off. I've never done anything like that before. I've never done anything since. Um, it caused absolutely uproar. I got home that night after Sky TV saying to me, don't worry about this, John, we'll ditch it, we'll get rid of this. I was watching the television with my then first wife. News at 10, main news. If there's any children in the room, could they please look away, because what they're about to see may be quite offensive. <laughs> Bang, main news, ITV. Myself with Berkovich. I had to leave the country. Every newspaper in the country had a front page. It was very much like Roy Keane walking out on Ireland. It created that much uh, hee-haw, you know? Ben Thatcher's elbow on Mendes. Everybody had their say, uh, and rightly so. It was out of order, it was wrong, and I did deeply regret it. Um, whether he got the word of me coming and I took his number 10 shirt off him, I don't know, but that's another <laughs> question. But again, it was, uh, it was out of character, and um, that went before me a little bit, because then you, you have to play then and live with that thug element, and it was thuggish. Um, but that was something I had to overcome and, uh, and obviously let my goals and my performances do the talking rather than the, uh, the nasty stuff like that. So I did genuinely, I know I joke about it and think about but I did regret that incident and it was very shameful for my family and obviously um, down in Wales we're only a little small country and anything that John Artson does gets publicity and uh, there's cameras on my mum and dad's houses at the time and press knocking their door and they don't want none of that and I brought all that on them so it was deeply shameful and uh, you know it was an instant that I, that I definitely regretted. Just before we go into the next, a, a quick answer to it, um, did you cover that in the first book or did you just do it in the second book? I probably did it in the first book part, yeah. 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 It's good because it, it's just good. What, what it is stopped. as well, that I was 21 then, I'm 36 now, that was 15 years ago and it's interesting because I scored 50 goals for West Ham in 70 games. I had a wonderful two years there. I finished Premier League top goal scorer at West Ham with 24 goals. No one ever talks about that. We're going to talk about Al Berkovic. <laughs> but that, that's the world we live in, unfortunately. That, that's what people remember, and that's it. I think we remember your goals too, big man. Uh, another question? Hi, John. Hi, Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Um, have you read it? I have read it. Did you enjoy it? Did it make you cry? It did. Oh, so, brilliant, so yeah. It was meant to, so. <laughs> <laughs> Shame your wife's not here because she's no, she the power of good as well. She's nice looking as well. So. Um, the question I had was, you mentioned a couple of times in the book, you're not particularly religious, yeah. you weren't a big churchgoer, but at the end of the book you say your mamgu was looking, you felt she'd been looking down on you. Yes. And I was wondering, going back to something you said in, in earlier about how God chooses who he gives cancer to or mm. who survives, did the seeds of that belief come before or after your illness? So definitely after. Because um, I, I, was, I was just like a walking party at times, you know, I lived life to the full. I was gambling, I was sleeping about and I was cheating and I was, I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing and running a mock really. Um, and the illness taught me an awful lot, you know. Um, and certainly, as I said about God and, and, and uh, the big man upstairs I call him, um, everybody has an opinion and who's right and who's wrong you know we'll never know really um, but definitely my gran was someone that um, I loved to bits you know um, 
and we lost her about a year and a half, about two and a half years ago, just before I got ill. So I always felt she was looking down on me and, uh, you know, making me stronger and getting me through it. And uh, and definitely now, uh, as I said, that is my belief. And every, some will agree, some won't. You know, I, I, think, I think he decides a lot what happens. Because why, why is there tragedies in the world? You know, why are uh, little kids kidnapped and, and, and murdered? And, you know, somebody must decide all this, you know. Um, so f definitely after my illness, I've become a, a lot more... Uh, um, so many people have told me that they prayed for me and, you know, um, I still get sent little prayer cards. I've got several in my wallet now. And, um, but definitely after. After, yeah, because as I said before, I was out of control, really. I really was on all fronts, not just uh, gambling and things. We're actually running out of time a little bit now. We've only got a few minutes left. We've got another question up uh, the back there in just one moment. Um, after we finish here, if you wouldn't mind greatly, if you'd let uh, John, and myself, I suppose, but go out first. John will go around the corner to the right-hand side. There's a signing tent, and if anyone wants to come and get the book, which uh, please don't go, it's a paperback in there for £7.99. Too cheap, actually. Yeah. Oh, too cheap. <laughs> uh, possibly the last question up at the back. Uh, can I just ask, um, does management or coaching appeal to you at all? And as a supplementary, really, where do you see your ex-colleague Paul Lambert going on the management trail eventually? Martin O'Neill, you mean? L Lambert. Oh, Lambert, sorry, sorry. Well, he's cloned Martin. <laughs> Have you seen it? It's actually quite embarrassing, actually. <laughs> He'll be talking with an Irish accent next. Paul's never wore glasses. <laughs> <laughs> never. Um, I think he's done exceptionally well, I have to say that. Um, started slow at Livingston, and then um, he had a short spell at um, Wickham. And then he went to uh, Colchester, and you know he sort of cut his teeth there if you like Norwich he's found that club you know what I said earlier on people find a club that works for them Brendan Rodgers has done the same at Swansea in his first season he's took them to the Premier League and I'm checking on the Swansea score now when I get out of here was it? is it really? thanks for that <laughs> but no Paul's done very well I have to, I have to say that um, and listen who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to copy Martin O'Neill uh, at the end of the day? I think you should be your own, I think you should be your own man. Um, management for myself. Um, the reason why I'm not managing now is because I've got two children that are 13 and 9 that live with them, my ex-wife, in a place called Planetli, which is 10 miles away from where I live. And if I took a job, I'd never see them. And being a father, to me, is more important than managing anybody. You know, I pride myself on being a good dad. Um, I take my boy to train him with the academy, my daughter to athletics and piano lessons and pick him up from school, and I enjoy being a dad. I could manage. I've turned down offers, coaching roles, um, but it'll be to the detriment of not seeing my kids grow up. Whereas my little girls with Sarah, they'll come with me because they live with me. Like my first wife came with me with my two kids, my eldest two. Um, but I wouldn't see my, my 13 and nine year old and that's too important to me. 
and I'm a young man still. I'm only 36. Ali McCoyst has just took his first managerial role. He's nearly 50. <laughs> you know, Ga Gary Speed has just took the Welsh job. Gary's 43. Gary's seven years older than me. So in five years' time, when my daughter's 18, and my boy's 16, and they're off doing their own thing, maybe college, university, whatever, I'll still be 41, young man. Um, then, then I'll throw everything into management then. But at the minute, the timing is just not right for me, and I'm looking to take Pat's job next in the BBC. <laughs> and, um, I'm, doing, I'm doing enough media which keeps me involved and keeps my eye in and keeps me in the public eye. Tomorrow I fly to London. I'm doing Arsenal versus Udinese tomorrow night in the Champions League uh, qualifier. Saturday I'm up in Bala in North Wales speaking my beloved Welsh language on the S4C. Sunday I'm on Match of the Day 2 in London. So I'm, I'm busy, you know, and trying to, you know, trying to get to piano lessons in between all that's hard, you know. No, I've got Rangers versus Maribor. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, everyone, uh, for coming tonight. Uh, I'm sure you found it uh, inspirational. I found uh, this book inspirational. It's a f fabulous read. Um, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't be so loud about it if I didn't think it was something very, very special indeed. Um, um, may I say, on behalf of anyone who's read it, your family and your friends are a wonderful group of people as well, John. Yeah, thank you. Real, Pat. real star people as well. Um, <laughs> just at this time, when we're going through a difficult time in uh, society, we're back, a broken British society, we keep on hearing. Everything I hear is about nobody caring for about anyone else. You know, society doesn't care about anyone else. Have a read of this book. I keep on reading how how terrible everything is in the National Health Service. Go and read this book. Look to what John has said about the National Health Service and what great things are done by the doctors, their yeah. carers and their geniuses as well, as you will no doubt agree. Um, people that I wouldn't have expected to think highly of, uh, some, some great things. Corporate people, I mean, you get great messages. The Celtic board were incredible to you, incredible. Junior, incredible to you. Even, and it may stick in the throat slightly, Scottish son, Peter, Lowell, Peter Lowell offered to put me into a place called Santa Maria where I could have some convalescence after my illness. Because you have to learn to get back into society. When you're, when you're bedridden for seven weeks and you're gravely ill in the HDU unit, which is a high dependency unit, where people are getting rushed in, having, you know, having triple bypasses and for the really gravely ill people. Um, Peter Lowell was on the phone and he was, uh, I didn't need it, mm -hmm. but uh, the offer was there and uh, it's things like that that don't, that don't get in the papers, you know. Exactly. Um, That's why I wanted to mention it now. Yeah, absolutely, Pat, uh, you're right to mention it. And uh, as I said, the, le the messages from the Celtic fans, you know, something like 14,000 people signed a book or put a message in a book. I read it when I was, I read every single message, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the hospital and uh, that, that gets you through. It helps, you know. And nearly got him crying at the end. Um, it's a super story. Uh, it's incredibly well written. Um, it's, uh, it's basically a feel-good story. Uh, but I'm really delighted to read it. And I really would suggest any of you who haven't bought it already to go and buy it. You can get it for 79.80 round the corner. <laughs> Good night and see you later. Thank you very much. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.